Hi there, and welcome back to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London, hosted by Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Burrs. Now getting right back into the thick of it, last week we were looking closely at chapters 4 and 5, which introduces the instinct for aggression. Now this week we'll be moving on to chapter 6, which Freud begins by saying, and I quote, In none of my previous writings have I had so strong a feeling as now that what I am describing is common knowledge, and that I am using up paper and ink, and in due course the compositor's and printer's work and material in order to expound things which are, in fact, self-evident. For that reason, I should be so glad to seize the point if it were to appear that the recognition of a special, independent, aggressive instinct means an alteration of the psychoanalytic theory of the instincts. End quote. So he's back to this theme, Tom, of wasting time, almost like lowering, lowering expectations for the reader before they even begin by suggesting, you know, it's nothing new, just a sharpening of focus. Now, how does Freud sketch out the history of instinct theory? Well, firstly, as you mentioned, Jamie, we have this apology, which is an echo of the beginning of chapter three. In fact, the same phrase, common knowledge, is used. But here the apology extends further to the compositor's and printer's work. There is an invocation here of the materials of writing. The using up of ink and paper suggests that ideas are intimately bound up in the technologies that disseminate them. But also the fact that there is not an inexhaustible amount of energy or material on offer. Paper and ink can be used up just as there is not an inexhaustible amount of libido available to the human subject. Freud goes on to write that, rather than offering anything new to the theory of instincts, his discussion is merely a matter of bringing into sharper focus a turn of thought which was arrived at long ago and following out its consequences. We have another echo here this time of the discussion of technology in chapter 3. The notion of focus reminds us of the spectacles that man invented in order to correct the defects of the lens of his own eye, or the telescope or the microscope, the perfecting of the organs. So we're in the visual language that's rooted in enlightenment concerns here, of seeing things more clearly, describing things more accurately. And yet, we'll remember from chapter 3 that this perfecting of our organs was itself a cause of uneasiness, a site of ambivalence. Instincts for Freud have proved to be particularly resistant to theorisation. From the very beginning, they produced a feeling of utter perplexity in him. But the theory was so essential for the structure of psychoanalysis that something had to be put in its place. The language that Freud uses to describe the development of instinct theory is particularly arresting. Of all the slowly developed parts of analytic theory, the theory of the instincts is the one that has felt its way most painfully forward. 
Notice the use of the language of physical sensation here. The theory has felt its way painfully forward. This seems to me a very important and precise figure of language. Instincts, or drives more accurately, are after all a kind of bridge between the body and the mind, a connection between soma and psyche, and cannot be situated in or reduced to either. It's perhaps this non-place that instinct or drive occupies that has led to the theory becoming somewhat neglected in later anglophone traditions of ego-psychology or object relations. Clearly for Freud, the instinct theory was indispensable for psychoanalysis and had to be dualistic. Taking the lead from Schiller's phrase that hunger and love are what moves the world, he initially postulated a correlate distinction between ego instincts and object in instincts. The term libido in this first dualism would refer solely to object instincts. The problem of sadism was a challenge for this early theory, but it was got over, according to Freud. Neurosis, then, would be the outcome of a struggle between the demands of the libido and that of the ego, in which the ego came out victorious, but at the severe costs of suffering and renunciation, so a kind of pyrrhic victory. Advances in the theory were later achieved with the investigation into narcissism and the discovery that the ego itself can be connected with libido and that, indeed, the ego is the original home of libido. Although this discovery helped to illuminate many conditions bordering on psychosis, it threatened to collapse the instinctual dualism that Freud found so essential structurally. If the ego instincts were also libidinal, what prevents us from collapsing the separate instincts into a general instinctual energy, a kind of drift into monism, as advocated by Carl Jung? However, Freud still maintained a conviction that the instincts were not of the same kind. Interesting word, that conviction, more akin to belief than rationality. Of course, it was in Beyond the Pleasure Principle where Freud displayed the courage of his convictions and postulated a new dual instinct theory, comprising of Eros and the death instinct, thus saving psychoanalysis from the threat of monism. In Freud's estimation, the instinct to aggression can be accounted for under this new theory, as the death instinct diverted towards the external world. Mm -hmm. So, aggression is essentially this Freudian death instinct directed toward the outside world. And it's hard for us to com comprehend, you know, we don't want to accept that we unconsciously have a natural instinct towards aggression. He says, you know, for little children do not like it when there is talk of the inborn human inclination to badness, to aggressiveness and destructiveness and so to cruelty as well. I mean, I think I see what Freud is saying here, that of course we don't want to, and we can think of ourselves in this way. And just to further his point, he then seems to mount another veiled attack on religion, suggesting that it is God who must be to blame for the existence of the devil. You know, 
How does Freud describe the workings of the instincts? Well, when Freud first postulated the idea of a death instinct in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he suggested that it operated in silence. And he reinforces that idea in this chapter. We only ever notice the death instinct when it is alloyed with its noisy neighbour, Eros. In the case of the instinct for aggressiveness or destructiveness, Freud suggests that the death instinct has been brought into the service of Eros to destroy something external to the organism rather than the organism itself. What is key here is that the death instinct and Eros are seldom, if ever, in isolation from each other. They are always alloyed in different proportions, so each can become unrecognisable. Sadism, which had seemed to fit so awkwardly into Freud's initial schema, could now be explained as a compound of the two instincts in which the destructive instinct takes prevalence, whilst masochism would consist of the same instinctual mix directed inwards. Freud's new dual instinct theory then, which seems to account for psychical phenomena so efficiently, obeying the ideal of Occam's razor, or the scientific rule of parsimony, has met, he writes, with resistance even in analytic circles. As you mentioned, Jamie, it is hard for us to accept that we are naturally wired and driven to destructiveness. Indeed, Freud mentions that he also initially found it difficult to accommodate himself to this view, which was first suggested by Sabina Spielrein. Our resistance is partly due to cultural reaction formations, such such as the injunction to love thy neighbour as thyself, that he had so effectively analysed in the earlier text, uh, earlier in the text. Christianity, with its doctrine that we are created in the image of a holy, perfect God, has to explain away sin by the existence of the devil. The paradox of the existence of the devil in a universe created entirely by a perfect and omnipotent God has haunted theology ever since St Augustine and indeed before. Freud caustically remarks that the devil serves the same purpose economically for God as the Jew does for the Aryan. It's interesting, I think, that the notion of the death instinct has remained one of his most controversial theories. Here Freud offers us a development of his position from beyond the pleasure principle. The instinct for aggression as the death instinct externalised. It is brought into sharper focus, as he stated earlier. Despite misgivings, it does seem hard to dismiss Freud's account, especially in light of the horrific events being reported in Ukraine at the moment. Freud's argument challenges us further, of course, as it suggests that this instinct for aggression is something that we all share. In another echo of Beyond the Pleasure Principle, it is in Goethe's Faust that Freud finds the most fitting support for his theory of the death instinct where evil is equated with destruction in the following lines spoken by Mephistopheles. For all things from the void called forth deserve to be destroyed. Thus, all with you as sin have rated, destruction ought with evil blent 
that is my proper element. Thank you. This is so interesting. I'm now going to read the final paragraph from chapter six. In all that follows, I adopt the standpoint, therefore, that the inclination to aggression is an original, self-subsisting, instinctual disposition in man, and I return to my view that it constitutes the greatest impediment to civilization. At one point in the course of this inquiry, I was led to the idea that civilization was a special process which mankind undergoes and I'm still under the influence of that idea. I may now add that civilization is a process in the service of Eros, whose purpose is to combine single human individuals, and after that, families, then races, peoples, and nations into one great unity, the unity of mankind. Why this has to happen, we do not know. The work of Eros is precisely this. These collections of men are to be libidinally bound to one another. Necessity alone, the advantages of work in common, will not hold them together. But man's natural aggressive instinct, the hostility of each against all, and of all against each, opposes this program of civilization. This aggressive instinct is the derivative and the main representative of the death instinct, which we have found alongside of Eros, which shares world dominion with it. And now I think the meaning of the evolution of civilization is no longer obscure to us. It must present the struggle between Eros and death, between the instinct of life and the instinct of destruction as it works itself out on the human species. This struggle is what all life essentially consists of, and the evolution of civilization may therefore be described as the struggle for life of the human species. And it is this battle of the giants that our nursemaids try to appease with their lullaby about heaven. Yes, it is a beautiful written, a beautifully written paragraph, isn't it? Um, it's a really elegant summation, I think. It feels as if we've reached the end of Freud's argument almost, doesn't it? The end of the text. Of course, we know that that's not the case, but it does seem a natural point at which to take stock. We end here, don't we, with the lullaby about heaven. Religion as an infantile structure which attempts to deflect attention away from the titanic battle of the instincts. There is a return here, isn't there? A, a recapitulation of Freud's earlier critique of the oceanic feeling. Whereas Roland had suggested that the oceanic feeling is the fons et origio of all religion, a sublime feeling for the infinite, Freud relates the oceanic feeling to regression, to a stubborn continuance of an infantile state which should have been overcome. It's interesting to track, I think, the trajectory of Freud's argument. It's only after the findings of psychoanalysis have been brought to bear on the phenomenon of civilization that we can finally arrive at a satisfactory answer. Instinct theory is fundamentally dualistic. 
Not only do we have the unpalatable fact that we all share an instinct for aggression, we are also denied the resolution that religion offers us, the comfort of a definitive answer. The adult position, as exemplified by psychoanalytic theory, is able to accommodate the ambivalence of dualism without seeking a regression to an infantile position of religious monism. We may, we may desire a resolution in the form of that lullaby to heaven, but what we're confronted with is a Wagnerian music drama, you know, the struggle at the level of the instinct, the Sturm und Drang. Let's move on to the start of chapter seven now, which starts with a passage which he begins by sort of proposing that we're not a state organization like bees, ants, and termites, but that we exhibit a cultural struggle. Now, Freud asks how we deal with our aggressiveness. Well, we interject it, we turn it back on ourselves, and this leads us to the introduction of the superego. Can you take us through Freud's initial argument here? Well, the previous chapter had been solely concerned with instinct theory. There was a kind of strangely impersonal tone to it, I think. The instincts seemed to operate on a meta level. These two uber drives share world dominion. The struggle is played out at the level of the species. In this chapter, Freud will zone in on the psychical apparatus, our psychical structures, in order to approach the question of human discontentedness from another angle. But it is the discovery of the instinct for aggression, the externalisation of the death instinct, that propels his argument. We are not, as you said, Jamie, a state organisation. Unlike termites, our activities do not exhibit a coordination and a commonality of purpose. Cultural struggle is endemic to the human condition. Aggression, as we know, is instinctive and therefore threatens to disintegrate the structures of civilization which are held together by the power of Eros. In order to defend against the potentially catastrophic force of instinctual aggression, civilization sends the aggression back to where it came from, back towards the individual ego. It is taken over, writes Freud, by a portion of the ego which sets itself over against the rest of the ego as superego. The superego then directs this aggression towards the ego by producing guilt. It takes the form of conscience. The shocking element of Freud's description of this mechanism is that civilization takes up the very aggression that threatens it and uses it against the individual in order to defend itself. So the superego is far from being a benign force in the service of a humanistic and pacifistic civilising process. Freud writes that civilization therefore obtains mastery over the individual's dangerous desire for aggression by weakening and disarming it and by setting up an agency within him to watch over it, like a garrison in a conquered city. The language of warfare and conquest, again, is striking here, I think. 
The sense of guilt, which becomes such an effective mechanism of control, is, in Freud's conception, the tension which exists between the ego and the superego, and it manifests itself in a desire for punishment. The origin of the sense of guilt comes from two separate but related sources, one building upon the other. To track these sources, Freud suggests that psychoanalysis differs from other psychological theories because it recognises that guilt cannot be associated with an act that has already been completed. We don't feel guilty because we've done something wrong, but somehow the guilt precedes the act. The intention is enough. Freud dismisses the notion that there is an, or an original or natural tendency to distinguish good from bad. Rather, the infant recognises that which is bad as that which will cause it to lose the love of its parents. The potential fear of the loss of love, the fear of the authority, it doesn't matter whether you've done the deed or not, it only matters if the authority has found you out. This is the first source of the sense of guilt, which Freud describes at this stage as a kind of social anxiety. The second stage is when the authority is internalised through the establishment of the superego. The feared external authority is introjected, takes its place within the psyche, and it is only at this point that we can properly speak of the sense of guilt. Once established, the superego maintains a totalising control over the ego. The old distinction between doing and thinking disappears for Freud, as, he writes, nothing can be hidden from the superego, not even thoughts. In its position of absolute authority over the ego, the superego goes on to torment the sinful ego with the same feeling of anxiety that it once had at the possible loss of its parents' love, and is on the watch for opportunities of getting it punished in the external world. This is clearly a devastating critique, isn't it? And it also introduces a kind of doubling, a reinforcing of positions that will continue throughout Freud's discussion of the superego and the origin of the sense of guilt. Okay, well, let's look at that sense of guilt and what Freud has to say about it on page 127. He says, Thus we know of two origins of the sense of guilt, one arising from fear of an authority, and the other, later on, arising from fear of the superego. The first insists upon a renunciation of instinctual satisfactions. The second, as well as doing this, presses for punishment, since the continuance of the forbidden wishes cannot be concealed from the superego. We've also learned how the severity of the superego, the demands of conscience, is to be understood. It is simply a continuation of the severity of the external authority to which it has succeeded, and which it has in part replaced. We now see in what relationship the renunciation of instinct stands to the sense of guilt. End quote. Well, this feels like a double bind, a force of total control. Could you elaborate for us 
you know, what Freud's verdict is on the sense of guilt. Well, yes, there is an impression of a total force of control here, isn't there? Freud goes on to write um, that a threatened external unhappiness, loss of love and punishment on the part of the external authority, has been exchanged for a permanent internal unhappiness, for the tension of the sense of guilt. The key word here is again the word tension. We might refer back to the Fort Dar discussion from Beyond the Pleasure Principle, if you'll remember that from our first podcast series. There, the child invents a game to represent the loss and the subsequent return of the mother. By throwing away the wooden reel, by symbolically staging the mother's absence, he allows himself to experience the pain of her absence. It's almost as if he wills it himself. It's better to bring suffering upon oneself in a controlled and expected way, almost, than to be subjected to an unpredictable violence that we may not able to be able to cope with psychically. Permanent internal unhappiness is stable, it's predictable, it's somehow manageable, whereas threatened external unhappiness is volatile, it's unpredictable and potentially catastrophic for the psyche. I mentioned doubling earlier, didn't I? But in Freud's elaboration of the mechanism of the sense of guilt, we also have a kind of reflexivity. The renunciation of the instinct, due to fear of the authority, leads to the creation of conscience, which in turn demands further instinctual renunciation. Every fresh renunciation of instinct then creates an even more severe demand from the superego. We can see why one of the most prevalent aims of psychoanalysis is to reduce the severity of the superego. To help us grasp this in terms of the structural model of the mind, Freud returns to the aggressive instinct. Here we meet with the doubling effect again. The child's original aggressiveness towards his parent brings him into confrontation with this stronger force. In order to get over the inevitable defeat against the stronger parental force, the child takes the authority into himself by means of identification. The authority now becomes his superego and takes over the original quota of aggression that was directed from the child towards the parent. This aggression is reinforced by the actual or perceived aggression that the child experienced from the parent in the in the real world and of course is directed both of these sources are directed back to the ego so two sources of aggression then each fueling the other one thing to remark at this stage is there seems to be a strange inversion of the argument that freud made against the notion that the oceanic feeling was the fons et origio of all religion from chapter 1 here we have the suggestion, at least hinted at by Freud, that aggression is the fons et origio of the sense of guilt, which itself becomes a determining factor in the establishment of civilization. In this way, I think, we can understand Leo Bassani's statement 
that aggression is the oceanic element that will flood the text of civilization and its discontents. Mm. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, we see the return of these two crucial Freudian texts, the first being his 1913 paper, Totem and Taboo, and one of his earliest theories, the Oedipus Complex, with the suggestion that remorse and a, and a guilty conscience reverts back to this killing of the primal father. Could you tell us more about this, as well as how does Freud conclude chapter 7? Yes, well, here um, Freud introduces, doesn't he, at this point, his much-debated myth of origins, you know, the killing of the primal father, that we discussed briefly in our episode last week. How can we account for the extreme nature of the aggressiveness that arises in the child at its first great instinctual frustrations and the corresponding severity of the ego? In experiencing this aggression and frustration to a disproportionately extreme degree, Freud suggests that the child is following a phylogenetic model. His theory that the development of the child, ontogenesis, replicates the development of the species, or phylogenesis, that the child will replay the history of the species in its own development, is one of the most controversial aspects of Freudian theory. But it remains crucial, nonetheless. It's the final piece of the Freudian jigsaw puzzle that roots the Oedipal complex in a moment of prehistory. The child's aggressivity can be accounted for by the fact that not only was the primal father no doubt terrible and extremely aggressive himself, and much more so than the majority of actual fathers now, but it also took a, a terrible act of aggression, his murder by the band of brothers, to overcome him. So our sense of guilt is ubiquitous. It exists prior to any action that might give rise to it, because we unconsciously inherit the burden of guilt that was established by this primary act of parricide. So the proper term for the feeling that would arise after an act would be remorse rather than guilt. To end this chapter, Freud rather appropriately brings us back to the drives, the instincts. Wouldn't the feelings engendered in the brothers, in the brothers after the killing of the primal father be categorised under the notion of remorse, writes Freud? Was there no sense of guilt then before this primal act of violence? And if not... How can we account for the brother's remorse? Freud suggests that the answer to this antinomy can be found in drive or instinct theory, in the original ambivalence of the drives. Yes, the brothers hated the father, but they also loved him. Their hatred, stoked by the aggressive instinct, may have led to the original murder, but their love for him, fuelled by the power of Eros, developed the remorse that led to the setting up of the superego in identification with the father, thus establishing the tension of the sense of guilt that was to be the determining factor for the individual psyche down through the ages, under the pattern determined by phylogenesis. In Freud's words, 
whether one has killed one's father or has abstained from doing so is not really the decisive thing. One is bound to feel guilty in either case, for the sense of guilt is an expression of the conflict due to ambivalence, the eternal struggle between Eros and the instinct of destruction or death. Therefore, we could see the primal scene of the Oedipal complex, the killing of the primal father, as kind of the quilting point between the instinct and the object relation that seems to have been so often divided in subsequent psychoanalytic literature. The ambivalence of the instincts works in parallel with the tension between the ego and the superego. To conclude, it appears the guilt, that guilt is a product of the tension produced between the ego and the superego, just as the evolution of civilization is the product of the tension produced by Eros and the death instinct. Thank you so much, Tom. This is such an interesting couple of chapters. Tough, but very interesting. Um, and this sort of intertwines these ideas from, you know, biology, the animal kingdom, anthropology, sociology, and you know, even literature, and finally all seen through this lens of psychoanalysis, sort of brought together with psychoanalysis. Next time we'll be back and looking at the final chapter, chapter eight of Civilization and its Discontents. So join us as we see how Freud concludes this thrilling paper. You've been listening to Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Ruers, and this episode was produced by Carolina Heller. We'll see you next time.